Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Brilliant, friends. So take out your Bible if you can do so, and you can open up to the second half of your Bible called the New Testament, page through the Gospels, and you'll get to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. So we as a church have been preaching through the book of Acts over the last couple of months, and we took a bit of a break to focus on some other things, including our series called Follow, and how much of a blessing was followed to so many people just coming back to us and saying it was amazing, the whole family going through it together. But in this season now, we want to come back to the book of Acts. And you can open up to Acts chapter 5, but where we left off the last time, we did a series called Real Christianity, because that's what this book is. It's the story of the early church, real people, real faith, real life, and it's this young church, a bunch of of young people that have been impacted by Jesus, and now they want to see their environment and their city impacted by that same message and kingdom of Jesus. And so we're going to leave real Christianity behind. And the next couple of chapters that we're going to tackle, we have now called those Jesus people. Those Jesus people. And the reason for it is you're going to see as we end off this little stretch in Acts on the 5th of December, it's going to end on this very last verse. In Acts eleven twenty six. this is where it's all going to end. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So Antioch was a city in the ancient East. The very first time in the history of mankind that these Jesus followers were called Christians, it says in Acts chapter 11, was at Antioch. And my question to us is why? Why were they called Christians? Now, if you are a football fan, I just spoke to Bandile beforehand, and he told me that he had suffered loss yesterday because his team drew and they should have won. But if you're a football fan, especially a European football, if I use the word hooligan, you know exactly what it is that I'm saying. Because the, the European football hooligans are basically this really, really amped up group are football supporters that lay waste to any environment that they find, right? So whether it's the opposite team, whether it's the managers, the environment, bottles, people, they just lay waste to all of it. That's how passionate they are. So this term for them, hooligans, has come to represent something of their ethos, right? But it's not a positive term. If someone calls you a hooligan, I don't think they're trying to pay you a compliment in any sense of the word. We have words like that in South Africa, isn't it? We have terms that we call groups of people that's not supposed to be kind. So if someone says tzotzi, right, that's not supposed to be a positive idea, right? Anyone with me on that one? Or very often, some people, when they use the word boor, they're not just trying to say a farmer. They, they're implying some things with some history in their hearts. Or the mother load of all disparaging terms in our country, the K word, I'm not going to say it in case some of you are like, no, don't do it. I'm not going to say it. But that is the mother load of all terms trying to say something that's not kind. It's the opposite of kind. Now, I say the word in 2021, Christian. And some people might be warmed in their hearts. Some might say, yes, that's positive. That's beautiful. But others would say, oh no, I get what you're saying. When you say Christian, I understand. Bigot, backwards people, anti-intellectual, anti-science, anti-gay, probably anti-vax, all the antis in there just to stir the hornet's nest just a bit more here this morning. I know what you're saying when you say that, and it's not meant to be kind. So my question is, why then would these people be called that name? 
Because guess what? You were not in that time. There were no denominational names. You know, you're a Baptist or you're a Dutch Reformed or you're in the Methodist Church or in CRC or in Doxado. They were just called Christians. Why? Because there was a moment where the, the momentum of this early group of Jesus followers built up so much that all the people around them started saying, you know what? These, these people, they are so Christian that it feels like that's what we're going to start calling them. And it wasn't a kind word. It was trying to say they were actually called atheists at that time because they didn't believe in the Roman gods and the Greek gods and all these different spaces. These Christians. And so what had happened, they were seeing the Jesus followers of the day doing what? They were healing the sick. They were um, giving aid to the poor of all sorts. They were inviting the rich and the poor and the young and the old and black and white. And they were inviting people of all different sexes and backgrounds into their fellowship. No one had ever done that before. They saw them rejecting a kind of loose sexual and moral ethic. They saw them forgiving even the people that were persecuting them. They heard them speaking about this Jesus and the message of hope and justice that he brings. They heard them speaking about the kingdom. And as all of that was happening, eventually they said, as they saw the love and the justice and the truth and the forgiveness and the hope, they started saying, those, here they coming, it's, it's, those, it's those Jesus people. Those Jesus people, why? Because they were not filled with politics. They were not filled with this is what we are against. But they became known for what they were for. More specifically, whom they were for. They are those Jesus people. And can I just tell you, this is what our country needs. This is what our city needs. A group of people where our city says, my wife is amening. So guys, we're in a bad space. Um, you're going to have to contribute a bit. So what our country and city needs is a people identified not with what we're against, our politics, our stances, our anti this and anti that, but we have to be known as they see us coming as people so filled with truth and justice and grace and love and forgiveness and hope that they say, here they come. It's those Jesus people. That's who we want to be. And we're going to see exactly what that looks like over the next couple of weeks. So let's jump into the narrative once again in verse 17. Just before this, the people are getting healed. They're getting taught. And unfortunately, because of that, verse 17. So then the high priest rose up, and he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles, and they put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Verse 28. They arrested once again. Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in his name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Verse 29. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. And when they heard this, they were enraged. They wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, he stood up in the Sanhedrin and he ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Be careful about what you are about to do to these men. Because some time ago, Thaddeus rose up and he claimed to be somebody. 
and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. But he was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. And after this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. And he also perished, and all of his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. And after they called in the apostles, they had them flogged, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. And then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Yo. Guys, I, my, I literally, my, my spiritual like energy races when I read a passage like this for what I believe Jesus wants to do in us and through us in this city. And there's so much here, but we're going to not focus on all of it. Just one thing for today that I think is so crucial. It stuck out to my heart. Acts 5 verse 19, it says, the angel releases them from jail and he brought, he brought them out and he says to them, go, stand in the temple and what? Tell the people about religion. Tell the people about positive thinking. Tell the people about how to be morally self-righteous and better than other people. Now, what does he say to them? Go and tell them about this life. Tell them about, the NLT says, this message of life. Why were they called Christians, week one friends? Because these Jesus followers were not full of religiosity, not full of dry moralism, not full of going to a building every second Sunday and trying to be a nice person and not swearing and not smoking. They were filled with life. They were filled with a kind of God-centered life, a God-quality life, a Jesus-inspired life that it almost felt to them, as New Testament writers would later say, you used to be dead and now you are alive. They were a people of life. But here's the thing, I think very often this just goes over our heads. If you're a Christian here this morning, maybe you sit there and you're like, yeah, cool, cool, I get it. But I don't think we get it. I think we lack often, I lack often, you often lack that life. Yes, it's become a way and I go to church and whatever. But do I have the kind of life that changed the world? That says, here they come, the Jesus people, full of life. So just put yourself, just for a moment again, once again, just with me back 2,000 years ago. See yourself as the average person during that time. What happens? Here comes this carpenter out of nowhere. You just hear the stories about this man. And he's teaching like no one had ever taught before. He's speaking about God like no one had ever spoken before. He's healing and doing things that no one had ever done before. And so what do you say? You say, you know what? I'm going to follow him. I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to leave my job. And people tell you, you are crazy. You shouldn't do that. But you say, I don't know. There's something in this man. There's something so different. There's something of a life in him that I've never experienced before. And I think this little group of his, I think they are going to change the world. So let's go. And this adventure kicks off. 
And it's incredible. And you see things that stun you. And you hear things that at times confuse and inspire you. And it all builds up. Jesus keeps on speaking about the hour. My hour is coming. Jerusalem is coming. My cross is coming. And no one's really sure what he's saying. But he comes this one day, faithful day, into Jerusalem. And the Jewish people want to make him their new king. But he says to them, that's not the kind of king that I have come to be. And then suddenly things go south very quickly. So that Friday that we get to, that we call Good Friday as Christians, on that Friday, this man that you've given everything to follow, that you've been inspired by, that you've gone after, that Friday, he is dead. He's dead. And not just dead, he has been tortured and put onto an upright piece of wood like a common criminal, like tens of thousands of other men during that time, and it's done. And friends, there's no hindsight. There's no Christianity. It's only you, this person you've given everything to. That Saturday, it's done. You are despondent. You are confused. You are discombobulated. Nothing makes sense anymore. It's all over. And then, that Sunday morning, you start hearing these stories are swirling around. Did you hear that the carpenter is alive? Did you hear that he is appearing to people and to groups of people? And I want to tell you that when those first people, those Jesus followers, heard that news, I do not think they were suddenly filled with dreams of politics and conquering the world and standing up against science or whatever it is. You know what they were filled with? They were not filled with moralism and religiosity. They were filled with life. They were filled with life. Something in their spiritual veins suddenly came so alive that they could not recognize themselves. New creatures, Paul would say later. Friends, this is what not trying to be a good person does to you. Getting your act together and coming to church. If I can just get my neighbor to not swear and drink, but come to church, that might not do anything. What he needs is the kind of life that comes from one thing, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So can we just spend a couple of minutes just on that kind of life? Where does that life come from? Where does it come from, the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Number one, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, where life comes from, guess what? It really happened. (laughs) It really happened. And you're like, if you're a Christian, you're like, yo, this is a low bar that we're starting with. You're like, duh, that's kind of the whole Christian thing, isn't it? But I think we miss it, friends. I think for some of us, it's up here. It's a good children's story. It has not infected literally every area of my finances, my sexuality, my relationships, my work. It is still here. But listen to this, verse 42. Just highlight this with me. It says, every day in the temple and in various homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming, not the good advice, the good news, what? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. That Jesus is is the Messiah and the Savior. They did not have a good spiritual framework. They did not have self-help. They did not have the secret. Attract what you want from the universe. Try to be a good person. They had a dead man who was now alive. 
And he did not come to teach us good ways to follow. Think about this. If the primary reason for Jesus coming to earth was to teach us, he would have left us a teaching. If the primary thing that he came to do was to give you a good life, he would leave you an example. But what did he come to do? Primarily, he came to live and die and be raised to life so that you would have life. Friends, Professor Richard Borkham from Oxford, he has probably written, I think, the most important book, full stop, of the last 50 years. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the 700-page monster book. And in it, he's drawing together one of the most well-respected scholars in the world. And he draws together the most cutting-edge research on the Gospels. How did we receive these four interlinked narratives of the life of Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he makes this argument. He says that, yes, there were people in the time of Jesus that wrote folklore and myth, that wrote fiction, that wrote things that were meant to just inspire you, make you feel good on the inside. That were meant to be good children's stories. But then he says there was another kind of writing at that time. People who are writing serious historical works. And he says those people did not mince words. They made a serious work of trying to communicate the exact happenings of this war or this event. They went to the eyewitnesses themselves, the people that were actually in the thick of it, and they were trying to communicate saying this is the truth of what happened. And he says, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you are not finding fanciful stories. Things that I sit in the evenings and I read to my kids about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's got the long flowing hair. And he's walking around doing nice things and being a nice person. Guys, let's be nice people like Jesus. No, he says, these were men that gave their lives to bring us a historical record of what Jesus did. Listen to this. Let me give you one example. There are hundreds like this, but let me give you one. Luke, the doctor, he's one of the early followers of Jesus. He wrote the book of Acts, but its prequel is the gospel according to Luke. And listen to how he starts this fairy tale, right? He says, Luke 1 verse 1, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled. But just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it's also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you an orderly account. Does that sound like a man, a, a medical doctor, a man of science, a man of, of rational thinking to say, I'm going to write you a fanciful story about a, a man with flowing hair who tells nice stories and he makes bread for kids. And he, no, he says, this man has, has radically changed my very perception of reality. I have to tell you about him. That is what he was saying. So whatever you think, Borkham is saying that whether you are atheist or Christian or agnostic, whether you're a Buddhist, whether, whether you are just spiritual, if you are a serious scholar of history, you come to the same conclusion. That whatever you think about the Gospels personally, this was not fanciful people telling nice stories to comfort themselves or to make a living or to be greedy or something like that. This was serious historical work about someone that changed everything. Let me give you one example of this. Again, it's all over. 
The gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, listen to how they think about this. So it's, this is in the moment where Jesus is going out to be crucified. So it says this, they led him out to crucify him, verse 21. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So they bring this man in to carry the cross of Jesus. His name is Simon of Cyrene, and he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now think about this. Why is Mark giving us these details? If the idea is, nice man, good teaching, about to die, he gets to the mountain, it's all over. No, he's saying, listen, Simon carried his cross. But not just any Simon, because Simon was a very common name in the ancient Near East. He's saying it was Simon of Cyrene. And it was the Simon of Cyrene who is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why is he giving us this detail? Because he's saying for the first readers of the Gospels at that time, these people are alive. Go and speak to them yourself. If you can't believe it, go and speak to them. He is putting everything on the line to say, this is not a fanciful story. This is my heart poured onto the page. Go and speak to them about the things that have happened. And that's why for centuries, as people of all backgrounds have investigated with an open heart and mind, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they have come very, very close to the point of saying, wow, this is taking me aback. I, I didn't realize that this was not just a nice, it's a nice story like all the other religious stories. It's nice ethics. It's nice philosophy. No, listen to what Jeff Lauder, he's a prominent atheist on the internet, and he says, I remember thinking to myself that if I took the time to investigate the resurrection, I could make anyone who believes it look like a fool. Or so I thought. I was about to discard it as another illogical religious belief, and yet I have found it extremely difficult to deal with as a critic. Because the more you dig into Jesus, the more you realize this is not a story, friends. This is a man that walked on the earth 2,000 years ago who claimed to be God, step into the dust of human affairs to come and confront our death, brokenness, and sin. It really happened. Where does life come from? From trying to be a good person? No, it comes from the historical work of God on a cross. And why is that so important? Because point number two, it really happened, yes, but it changed everything. It changed. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. Read with me once again. So Gamaliel he is saying, guys, let's just think about this for a second. How many people have come past? And then, you know, this guy's charismatic and he's political and he's got a thing. People start rallying around him. What happens? It always happens. He dies and the people scatter. It's done. So he's like, guys, let's not be stupid. This Jesus guy, he's hot right now. It's like Zoolander. He's so hot right now. But he's dead. So it's going to scatter very soon. And then I think he says something that I don't even think he fully understood. He says, verse 39, highlight this, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In fact, he says, you will find yourself, I wanted to make the, the title of the sermon, fighting against God. He says, if, you go, if this Jesus dude is actually something from God, you will be picking a fight with the creator of the universe himself. 
This was not just a nice Bible story to keep us busy. He says this absolutely changed the very fabric of history. Friends, think about this. To this day, it's the death and resurrection of a homeless peasant from the ancient Near East that the whole of history hinges around. Think about that. To this day, this man had no influence, no army, no political party. He never wrote a book or a song. He died like a common criminal, like tens of thousands of people, and yet this one homeless peasant from the ancient Near East, everything post his life was different. Why? Because he, not through his teaching alone, not through his example alone, but the death and resurrection changed everything. It was the wow moment of wow moments. Friends, let's just, let's just speak to one another. You have had, I've had some wow moments in life. Can you just think of one for now? I, I remember being on Table Mountain for the first time, and outside of the view, just wow. At one stage, I'm sitting there and eating lunch, and a dusty jumps onto my table. He grabs my lettuce leaf, and he intimidatingly looks me in the eye while he's just like eating it like this. I wasn't even mad. I was just like, that's wow. Like, this is like a moment for me in this dusty. I've never experienced something like this before. When I saw my wife coming down the aisle, friends, yo, that mana, it's prophetic. That was wow. I had seen her many times in my life, but I had never seen her like that. Maybe the young adults can agree with me. The first paycheck you ever got, right? You open it up with expectation, and you suddenly see this, you know, something that goes to this thing called the South African Revenue Service. And you, you made this the sum and you're like, wow, like what, what is this? How, do, how does this work? This adulting thing, why, why? So we've had wow moments in life. But friends, guess what? Life goes on, isn't it? After the dusty, after the paycheck, life moves on. But then you have moments after which nothing is ever the same again. If you have to wheel your wife into an emergency room and you genuinely don't know if she's coming back, to then see the doctor stepping out and he has a smile on his face, it's never the same again, friends. If you're a single mom and someone in the church says, listen, I just want to take your boys out for the weekend and just go fishing and spend time with them, you say, man, that, that is wow." If you have been scraping along financially for the last couple of months trying to make things work and someone phones you and he says, I want to bless you with a substantial amount of money. There are tears in your eyes because you know nothing will ever be the same again after this act. What are the gospel writers telling us? They are saying, friends, the first half is like good advice. Your life's a bit of a mess. Here's what you can do about it. But he says, this is not advice. It's news. News is something that happened. And because of it, nothing will ever be the same again. And he says, Jesus, he's that kind of thing. He's that kind of thing. Because here comes a man who speaks of a God who is powerful and gracious, but he's also deeply personal, he says. He cares for you more than you can ever know. Yes, he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. But yet he is deeply personal. And he speaks of this God and his coming kingdom. 
And he says that if you were to know that this Jesus who had a movement around him as he speaks about this king and the kingdom and his coming new creation and he invites people into it, that Jesus on that Friday is killed and it's done. Remember, that Saturday, there was no Christianity. There was no, like, guys, we'll rally. It was nothing. But the Sunday morning, it was game on for Christianity forever. Because everything had changed because of it. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people overnight start turning to this Jesus. Not as a teacher, but saying, He is God. Think about it. Let me give you one example. Matthew 28. Just to say today, friends, it's not a sermon where it's like, here's the A and B thing you need to do at the end of it. Today is meant to speak to your heart. All right. Matthew 28. It says, so departing quickly from the tomb with fear and joy, they ran to tell the disciples of the news of this empty tomb. But then Jesus, the resurrected Jesus with the resurrected body and power, he meets them. And he says to them, greetings. And they came and they took hold of his feet. And what did they do? Did they speak to him? Did they catch up with him? Did they get a little coffee here at Plato just down the street? No. It says what? They worshipped him. They worshipped him. Friends, think about that. Yesterday, he was a common crucified criminal. He was a failed Messiah. He had walked with them for three years, and those same people, when they see him that Sunday morning, they worshipped him. That's why the cross is the most recognizable symbol in the world. Think about other you know, symbols of death and execution. If you mention a firing squad or a syringe or an electric chair, it elicits nothing from people. But if you mention the cross... In every culture and language in the world, people become teary-eyed. They become, they become deeply hit in their hearts when they start accounting, when they start telling of their lives and what they were going through. And whether rich or poor or accomplished or not, on the streets or in the mansions, they said, my life was a mess and broken. I was lost and confused. And then Jesus. The cross changed everything and it's doing it today. It's doing it today. Where did that life come from? It came from the fact that this cross and its resurrection, it changed everything. And therefore, lastly, I need to speak to us because it's not just that it changed everything for everyone else, but that it changes it for you and for me and for these people out here that are yet to know Jesus. Because finally, the death and resurrection of Jesus, I believe it truly happened and it changed everything. But finally, it's deeply personal. It's deeply personal. Listen to this, verse 41. I like this. It says, then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin. They had just been beaten. And they went out, what? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Friends, can I just level with you? If you are just kind of reading very superficially about the life of Muhammad and a little bit of here's what Buddha did and he's got some good and Confucius and he's got good ideas and, you know, you're just vaguely spiritual. I've got some dream catchers and maybe some crystals in my, in my room somewhere. I promise you that you, for a, a, a well-being seminar or a bit of religious sprinkling that you do once or twice a year, 
Once you have been beaten to an inch of your life, and you have been publicly humiliated in front of the most powerful people that you know, you will not walk away rejoicing unless it is life. If it's a good idea, guys, you're going to get beaten for it. Guys, I'm out. This idea, I'm not worth, it's not worth dying for. Guys, I'm like a D-A-N-C-E-F-F guy. We're going to beat you. All right, no, it's cool. It's cool. I'm out. I'm vaguely religious. Guys, Christmas is my day. Easter, we're in church. Okay, we're going to beat you for it. It's cool. <laughs> These guys go out rejoicing. Why? Because it was not vague moralism. It was not trying to be a good person. It's because they had seen the resurrected Jesus and now life had entered into their veins. People that felt lost and broken, confused, had an identity of pain and shame and guilt about themselves, suddenly found a man who came to show them what God's opinion of them is on the cross. Of a God who so loves that he gives of himself. Of a shepherd who goes out to find the one like me and like you. Who cries over the city of Pretoria and says we will find every single one of them. That kind of God brought life. Just finishing off, you know, I think 2005, I was grade 11. And, you know, we're a multi-ethnic church. So some of you guys, you're like football guys. Some of you are like golf and soccer or whatever it is, hockey. And some of you guys are like MotoGP, like Michaela. Um, and some of you guys watch five-day test cricket. Like, I'm just saying, like, how you do that, I have no idea. But bless you. I'm a rugby guy. So yesterday, just as a side note, it's not part of the sermon, but I have to say it. That was, that was magic. But there was another moment like that, having victory snatched at the end, 2005. We're at a Christian camp, and we are stuffed into the small building. Why? Because it's the Curry Cup final, when the Curry Cup was a thing. And who's playing? It's the Free State Cheetahs against the Blue Bulls from Pretoria. And I come from the Free State, and now I live in Pretoria, so I'm very schizophrenic as I'm telling this story. But Man, at the very last second, the free states, they snatch that game from those poor bulls. And friends, I'm telling you, spontaneous combustion of energy happens in that building. It's just like waves of energy and bodies, and it's just crazy. And in all of that, I literally, I don't even know why. It was like the most natural thing. I just ran out. I shot open the doors and I ran out onto like this, this, this little camping ground with my hands. And I was running around like this. I couldn't believe it. And I come across two girls sitting there very quietly reading a book, each of them. And I run up to them. I grab the book and I tell them, we've won. And the girl looks at me like this with like this puppy dog like face. And she's like, what did we win? I nearly had an aneurysm. I'm like, <sighs> but you know what I realized that day? Good news is not good if it doesn't affect the very depth of your heart. If it doesn't affect the depths of your soul, of your brokenness, of your story, it's not good news. It could have been good news to everyone around you, before you, and those coming after you. But if it's not good news to you, it's not good. 
And some of us today, I say this of myself, guys, the last 18 months, I've been there a couple of times where my faith has become a dry religious habit. Because this life is no longer the thing that drives me. I have forgotten the joy of my salvation. And some of you here today, I believe, you have run away from God rebelliously into beds and bottles and businesses, and you've come up empty time after time. Or you have been trying to run to God religiously, do the right thing, grit my teeth, go to church, serve, give, and you have come up empty. And Jesus says, it's when you see that he has not just come for the masses, but he has come for you. That God has come to the, to the dust of this earth for us, for this city, for South Africa. He says, suddenly there is life. And then people see us. And the response to that life is love and justice and truth and hope and grace. And a church that will not be quiet in a city. And a church that will not go and lie down during COVID in this country. And they see the acts of forgiveness and truth and justice and hope. And what do they say? Here they come. Those political people, those anti-science people, those bigoted people, those backwards people, you know what they say? Here they come, those Jesus people. That's what I want, and I know that's what you want. It's the life that comes from Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, I just simply ask that you would come and flood us once again with that beautiful presence of life. May every dead heart this morning experience a revitalizing life that brings joy and hope. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.